1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, if you can have microwave
2: ovens, why not microwave boilers? When it comes to green heating, things are a bit more wide open, and the market is, at the moment at least, anyone's to play for.
1: And how do bees
3: do it? Bees seem to have developed this social immune system whereby they kind of vaccinate their young to fend off bacterial infections.
1: But first, April 7th is World Health Day. The World Health Organization is pledging to build a fairer, healthier world. Technology is an increasingly important part of medicine, but is medical technology fair for all populations, or are there biases against people of certain races or genders? Throughout the pandemic, various devices have been used to help assess and treat COVID-19 patients. Yet if the technology is inaccurate or shows a bias towards some patients, the consequences could be fatal.
0: The Pulse oximeter is a mainstay in hospitals.
1: Tamara gilks is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent.
0: Most of us have used one. It's a device that clips onto the end of your finger like a clothespin, and it measures oxygen levels and pulse rate, among other things. It was used during the pandemic and currently to triage patients. Patients with oxygen levels above a certain level were sent home to self-monitor, while those with lower oxygen levels were admitted to the emergency room. Unfortunately, the pulse oximeter tends to overestimate oxygen levels in darker skinned patients, making them appear healthier than they actually are. What do you mean? So one study at the University of Michigan found that the pulse oximeter misread oxygen levels in black patients by four points, more than 12% of the time. And four points is a difference between being admitted to the emergency department or being sent home. And this happens three times less frequently in white patients.
1: Let's dive into the science. What is causing the difference?
0: So the pulse oximeter basically passes light through the finger, and it reads the amount of oxygen based on the amount of light that is absorbed on the other side. And with darker skin patients, more light is actually absorbed, so that causes the misreading.
1: So the devices were designed for white skin and not for black skin.
0: Yeah, it truly is as simple as that. The design was based on white patients. So when anybody with a darker skin tone uses the device, it misreads it for them.
1: So what's another way around the problem? What else can we do to measure blood oxygen?
0: So unfortunately, the alternatives are really invasive procedures. The arterial blood gas measure requires a painful blood draw from an artery in the wrist rather than the veins. So that is a more accurate measure, but it's often reserved for the sickest patients.
1: Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's right in a COVID hospital that's trying to minimize contact with patients.
0: Right. And we certainly don't want to have to suggest that a certain patient segment must always have the most invasive procedure because we have not properly designed devices for them.
1: How did this situation come to pass and what can we do about it?
0: Studies have known about this discrepancy for a long time, since 1999, And many practitioners that I interviewed had said that they were not even aware of this discrepancy. Fortunately, in the last year or so, it has gotten a lot of attention. The FDA has released notification about the bias and is asking practitioners to use the readings as a trend rather than a pinpoint measure to account for the fact that these misreadings can occur.
1: But an implication is that minority patients were turned away who deserve better health care based on the standards that the care that should have been given. So what are we going to do about it right now in the midst of the COVID crisis?
0: That's a great question. So right now the FDA is issuing that guidance that says that we should not be using these numbers as absolute measures, but rather look at trends over time. So to pay attention, especially in dark-skinned patients, to a downward tread in oxygen levels, rather than focusing on the actual number. But unfortunately... This is definitely an issue at a time when we really need these devices to work.
1: Now, this sort of technical discrimination based on the design of the devices isn't only in the oximeter. It appears elsewhere throughout medical science. Where else are you seeing this crop up?
0: So unfortunately, we're seeing racial bias and also gender bias in other parts of medtech. One example is a medical algorithm that the company claims is used on over 200 million Americans per year to allocate expensive and scarce medical resources to patients and the healthier white patients were prioritized over sicker black patients. This was happening because they were using the amount of prior medical expenses as a proxy for how sick a patient was. Unfortunately, black patients in America tend to spend less on medical care for a variety of reasons. Some of this is access to medical care Sometimes it's because of poor experiences or mistreatment in the medical system. So they end up actually going to the doctor less frequently. So overall, this proxy was actually prioritizing white patients who tend to go to the doctor more often. But in this case, the firm that created the algorithm quickly took the point. They collaborated with the researchers involved in the operation and the result isn't reduction in bias. But the bias has not been abolished completely. Often it's really difficult to abolish bias from algorithms. Sometimes these algorithms are trained on data that has societal bias in it already. For example, you might use patient data that is subject to the implicit biases from the physicians who were recording that data. So it can be really tricky to reduce bias completely in algorithms, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try.
1: And the bigger point is that we need to rethink many of our devices and many of our protocols to take into account not just the research subjects from the 1970s who are all white males, but women and minorities as well who should require different readings to set in place different protocols.
0: Exactly. Many researchers are calling for more diversity within research to make sure that this is not happening. A study in 2015 found that women wore 30% or less of the study in 15% of NIH studies. Black participants were 10% or less of the study population in 22% of studies, and it was 21% for Hispanic participants. So overall, we're finding that we are not seeing that studies have enough participants of color or enough participants that are women to represent their status in the population, but to make sure that there's enough that we can actually do subgroup analyses to account for these differences.
1: But maybe the data from a hospital in Milwaukee And what the patient care in Milwaukee looks like is different than in Boston. So you just can't use an algorithm generated in in Boston for the people in Milwaukee.
0: The answer isn't simple, but basically, if you had to give a simple answer, it's to focus on representation. Make sure that when you are looking at a population and the study, it truly can be generalized to the population in which you plan to use it. Just like with the Moderna vaccine, they made sure to focus on people above 65 It's similar. You need to think about not just representing everybody for everything possible, but like who is reasonably going to need this and need access to it. And most of the time, women especially, but also people of color are going to need it. So if we are using these devices around the world, researchers need to make sure that they can actually generalize these results to the world.
1: Tamara, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. In
1: this week's issue of The Economist, you can read our full analysis on design bias and how to overcome it. The science section also examines whether a relationship exists between AstraZeneca's vaccine and rare blood clots, as well as a second possible break in the laws of physics. For your best introductory subscription rate, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And don't forget to tell them, Ken sent you. Coming up, microwave boilers and an added buzz around vaccinations.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: decarbonizing an economy is a big job, but we all know what to do. Replace that gas-guzzling car with an electric one. Swap coal and gas-fired power stations for green ones, like wind, solar, or nuclear. Less attention is paid to heating, but in cold countries such as Britain, where it is currently snowing in some parts, Warming houses, offices and buildings consumes more fossil fuel than either electricity generation or transport. So what is the future of central heating?
2: Most homes are heated by either natural gas or fuel oil, which is burned in a central boiler, where it heats water that then goes to radiators elsewhere in the building.
1: Tim Cross is the Economist Technology Editor.
2: It's not just Britain. That system is common in lots of cold countries throughout Europe. But from 2025, with those green ambitions in mind, the government is planning to ban gas-fired boilers in in newly built homes in Britain, and their ambition is by the mid-2030s that anyone who owns an existing gas boiler won't be able to replace it with another one either. And so that leaves homeowners with a bit of a dilemma, because when it comes to green heating, things are a bit more wide open, and the market is, at the moment at least, anyone's to play for. So what are the green heating contenders? There are a couple of technologies in contention, as it were, and I think you know they each have a, a mix of advantages and drawbacks. So one that you hear a lot about is hydrogen, which is useful because when you burn hydrogen, it doesn't produce any greenhouse gases. You just get water, and you can tweak existing boiler designs fairly easily to burn the stuff. So in Britain, you can already buy so-called hydrogen-ready boilers that will burn hydrogen if they're supplied with it. So they work as a sort of drop-in replacement, so the size of ordinary boilers, they can produce hot water to drive your existing radiators. You don't need to replace them or anything like that. And, of course, we already have a national gas grid, so we could use that to deliver hydrogen to people's homes. The downside, of course, is how you produce the stuff. So elemental hydrogen doesn't really exist in any great quantity on Earth, so you have to either extract it from natural gas, which brings you back to you know, what you do with the uh, the greenhouse gas byproducts, or you can split it from water using electricity, which doesn't produce greenhouse gases as long as the electricity itself is clean. But it is expensive because you need large amounts of electricity to do it. And it does sort of raise the question of if you're going to be generating all this electricity anyway, just to create hydrogen, why not just use it directly to do whatever you wanted the hydrogen to do?
1: What about other potential green technologies?
2: The other technology is heat pumps, which are basically like fridges that run backwards. So they concentrate heat from the outside air or sometimes from, from the ground and basically pump it into a house. Because they're moving existing heat around rather than generating it from scratch, they can be very, very efficient. So some of the manufacturers will advertise, you know, 300% efficiency or, or something like that. And because electricity is so expensive compared to fossil fuels, that's potentially really, really big advantage. The downside of heat pumps is that they're big. They take quite a lot of space to install. And Britain has a lot of quite small, you know, houses, flats and bedsits and so on. So it's not totally clear that that they'll always work. And they produce warm water rather than hot water, which often means you're going to need to replace the radiators. You'll need much bigger radiators or underfloor heating. So they're efficient, but they're not really a drop-in replacement for what people already have. The other downside is that because they rely on heat that's already there, their efficiency tends to, to drop on cold days when you, when you sort of need them the most. But there are some engineers at a small British company called HeatWave who think they have another option, which is to use microwaves instead.
1: Okay, so this is interesting. Microwaves are better known for things that are in homes and offices for people to heat ready meals. So how would the technology work to create heat in a home?
2: It's essentially the same idea. So the reason microwaves work is that lots of molecules, including water, are electrically dipolar, which just means they have a positive charge at one end of the molecule a negative charge at the other. And so if you expose them to an electromagnetic field and you tune the wavelength and so on, you can get them to line up with the field. And if the field is changing, if it's oscillating, then the molecules will do the same. They'll sort of flip backwards and forwards and essentially sort of bump into each other, you know, jostle each other, bump around. Uh, that creates heat, which is why, you know, you can heat your delicious ready meals in your microwave oven.
1: Okay, so that's the science. So how do you turn a microwave oven into a boiler?
2: Well, according to HeatWave, you don't really. So they reckon that the advantage they have is that they, they get rid of the standard technology for generating these microwaves. So your oven will use something called a magnetron, which is a piece of World War II vintage technology. It's big and it's chunky. It's a cathode that's surrounded by a sort of carefully shaped anode. It's all designed to produce electromagnetic radiation of a specific frequency, but it's big and it's heavy and it's bulky. What this company have done instead is they've figured out a way to build a solid state device on a standard silicon chip that basically does the same thing. It takes electricity in and spits microwaves out. So the idea is you have an array of these things beam microwaves into water inside your boiler, which heats it up. And then you can do clever tricks as well. So you can make the pipes that carry the water inside the boiler, you can make them from microwave sensitive materials as well so that they heat up and pass a bit more heat into the water. You can do the same with the insulation, you can add heat exchangers and so on. And when you do all that, the company reckons you end up with a boiler that's about maybe 95% efficient at turning the electricity that's pumped into it into the hot water that flows out.
1: Okay, so I'm all
2: in on buying a microwave boiler What are the drawbacks? Well, the main drawback is the one it shares with all the other sort of non-fossil fuel heating technologies, which are, it's going to be more expensive to run, essentially. There are other drawbacks that apply kind of more at the national level rather than to existing consumers, which is basically because you want to run heat pumps or you want to run, you know, direct immersion heaters like you find in a kettle, which is another technology, or you want to run these microwave boilers, you're going to need to massively beef up your power grid. But of course, that's a problem that applies to kind of any electrically sourced heat. The bad news for consumers, I think, is that things just are going to get more expensive in future. It's going to be a question of which technology keeps the prices as as low as they can possibly be.
1: So when can I get one to heat my home?
2: HeatWave says it wants to get commercial versions of its boilers ready by twenty twenty four, which is the year before the ban on gas boilers in new houses comes in. And they say that they're working with most of Britain's big house builders. But, you know, Ken, you'll know as a technological veteran, there are lots of ideas that look good on paper, but for whatever reason, don't really work in the market. So I'm afraid, unsatisfying as it is, the answer might be, we'll just have to wait and see. And I think this this whole question of how you decarbonize heating is still one that doesn't really have any kind of a consensus. What a disappointment.
1: But I guess that's the way technology goes. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Finally, it is a wonder of modern science that there are several COVID-19 vaccines being rolled out around the world within a year of the first outbreak. It may still come as a surprise, however, that human beings are not alone in having invented vaccines. New research confirms that honeybees got there first.
3: Bees are taking bits of pathogen fragments and passing them along to their young to encourage their young to develop a robust immune response to these pathogens before they ever actually encounter them.
1: Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist.
3: Queen bees are able to integrate little bits of disease into the eggs that they lay. As their eggs develop inside the comb, the bodies of the youngsters are beginning to interact with these little bits of disease and they develop a robust immune system against whatever the queen has put in there. We don't know how the queen gets the disease fragments because the queen herself doesn't go out of the hive. She doesn't even eat stuff that's brought into the hive. She's fed royal jelly, which is produced by other bees in kind of a purified format that doesn't have stuff in it, or at least that's what we thought. So what's the answer to that mystery? Now, this specific cast of bees that are feeding the queen are known as nurse bees. They're a subset of workers. The nurse bees are known to produce a secretion, which is called royal jelly, and they then pack this up and feed it to the queen. Nurse bees do get exposed to stuff that is outside of the hive, so they collect pollen, they eat pollen that's been brought in, and then they presumably convert that into food for the queen. Dr. Gian Harwood at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign worked with a team of researchers out of the University of Helsinki to question whether or not nurse bees were responsible for this stuff. So they collected a bunch of nurse bees and put them into six queenless mini hives that were each equipped with broods of honeycomb that they could then monitor and see what the nurse bees were doing. What did the researchers find? they fed these nurses sugar water that had dead pathogens in it. Those pathogens were laced with a fluorescent dye. And so Dr. Harwood and his colleagues guessed that if the nurses were processing these pathogens, And then putting it into the royal jelly, they would see this stuff by being able to monitor it with the dye. And sure enough, that's exactly what they found. They scanned all of the royal jelly that was produced by these nurses and they were able to see the fluorescent dye that had been tethered to the dead pathogens in the sugar water. So that explained where queens are getting the pathogen fragments that they ultimately put into their eggs. But nurse bees don't just feed royal jelly to the queen, they also feed royal jelly to larva just after they hatch during the first few days of their lives. So that suggested that not only are honey bee larva being given little bits of bacterium to prime their immune systems when they're in their eggs, they're also getting what we would effectively call a booster jab just after they hatch.
1: This is extraordinary. Why would honeybees need this sort of vaccination?
3: So honeybees are at a constant risk of disease. And it's very much similar to human beings, if you think about it, because people live in often close quarters in cities and towns where there's a lot of sociality. We love to chat. And while bees don't exactly chat, they are very social and they do live in close quarters. And intriguingly, compared to asocial bees honeybees actually don't have that many genes for immune protection. They don't have that much going on to protect them that's just born into them. So they seem to have developed this social immune system whereby they kind of vaccinate their young to compensate for that.
1: How effective is this sort of vaccination program? It must serve a great evolutionary purpose since bees have been around for a while.
3: The effect has got to be considerable, given that these things prime the immune system to fend off bacterial infections. The researchers did not take the next step and expose larvae to diseases to see how, how resistant they were to them. But presumably it must work very well because this is a lot of work that the nurses are going to, and for them to be doing it, there must be a substantial advantage, otherwise they wouldn't go to all the effort.
1: Why is this so important? What can we learn from this?
3: So this is interesting because That tells beekeepers that if they want to give their hives any kind of an immune boost based upon the food that they're providing, then the nurse bees are the target because they are both feeding all of this stuff to the queen, who is going to lay the eggs, and also feeding the royal jelly to the immediately hatched larvae and giving them that booster. So if we're going to try to improve honeybee hive health in the future, then... Any tactics got to involve the nurses.
1: And it confirms what we all knew nurses are always working really hard, and the Royals are taking all the credit. Matt,
3: thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken.
1: And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are the fantastic Jason Hoskin. The amazing Abbe Soyer Oshendairo, and the editor is the extraordinary Sandra Schmueli. I'm the incredibly humble Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist.